Well. As Monty Python said, now for something completely different. Uh, You may recall that we spent seven weeks talking about sex. So now we're going to leave that topic and talk about marriage. Just kidding. So, uh, some wags will read what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9, where he says, If they cannot control themselves, they ought to marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion, as if to say that there is no such thing as a marriage in which there is burning passion. You've heard the joke, I'm sure, about Baptists. Why, you know why Baptists don't approve of premarital sex? Because it might lead to dancing. <laughs> and uh, some people would, would say that, uh, that uh, Christians are, are so anti-sex, that's why they always want people to get married. Um, that's actually not true. Um, 2010, an Indiana University study found that uh, of uh, singles ages 25 to 59, fewer than 5% were having sex two to three times a week. Of those who are married in that age range, 25% were having sex two or three times a week. If you take single men 18 to 24, only 10% have sex two or more times a week, whereas two-thirds of married men between the ages of 18 and 24 are having sex two or more times a week, which actually makes perfect sense in light of what Paul is saying here in chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. He says, because there is so much immorality, so much sexual immorality, i.e. because you are so tempted to be engaged in sex outside the bounds that God has established, you all need to get married and have plenty of sex within them. Now, just to catch us up to this spot in the letter, as you recall, Paul starts off in 1 Corinthians after he clears his throat and says a bunch of nice things to them. He then yells at them for all the divisions that are uh, going on, all the, all the factionalism, the adherence to different teachers and people assembling themselves into different teams. He critiques them for having a wisdom that is really not wisdom, it's simply human arrogance and and self-flattery. He says that the result of all this is that there are divisions in the church, and the church is the very last thing that ought to be divided. It's the body of Christ. It's the temple of the living God, and the last thing it should be is broken up into factions. In fact, he says the, the whole point of me doing what I'm doing and of all the other apostles and teachers doing what they're doing is to build up the body of Christ. And the fact is that none of us is really in a position to assess the value of what we're doing. The day will come when the quality of each person's work is going to be assayed. We will find out whether what we have built is lasting or whether it is something that is going to get burned up. But the point is, God's the one who makes that call, not us. And certainly not you. What you're not called to do, Paul says, is to be discriminating 
epicures of spiritual experience. What you're called to do is to be faithful partners in building up the body of Christ. The problem, Paul says, is that even as you are trying to rival one another to figure out who is more spiritual, there is gross, gross immorality going on among you. You've got people who are suing each other rather than reaching agreements with the aid of the community. You've got people who are engaged in the kind of sexual immorality that is making your pagan neighbors blush, right? It's like Bill Belichick saying that he thinks you're cheating. And so, at this point, having addressed all the things that Paul feels he needs to address before he gets to their questions, now he starts getting to their questions. Beginning of chapter 7, he says, now for the matters you wrote about, this phrase peride in the Greek shows up about a half a dozen times where it seems like Paul's got this little punch list of, of things that the, the Corinthians raised, whether it was questions or, or, or challenges to him. Here, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Now, obviously, this is not to be taken directly because, in fact, he, right after this, talks about how important it is for men to be touching their wives. What, what he's probably doing here is he's probably quoting a slogan. Uh, and unfortunately, in the Greek, we, we don't have quotation marks. Those have to be supplied, uh, like other punctuation, as well as things like capitalization, as well as things like spaces between words. I mean, you look at one of these old manuscripts, it's just a massive block of text. What Paul is probably doing here, and we understand this from context, is he's probably quoting a, a slogan or a, a, a statement, a, a, a motto that the, the Corinthians have come at him with. It seems that some of them have come to understand what Paul's teaching is meaning that, it, that people should not be involved in any sort of sexual activity at all. And Paul says, well, no, that's not exactly what I meant. In fact, because there is so much sexual immorality, because there's so much porneia out there. Remember, porneia is the Greek word that's kind of a catch-all term for sexual immorality. It's where we get the word fornication. He says, because there's so much porneia, and each man ought to have his own wife, and each woman ought to have her own husband. And, you know, by have, that doesn't just mean you should be married. It means you should live like you're married. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Likewise, the wife to her husband, because the wife's body doesn't belong to her. It belongs to her husband. And similarly, the, the husband's body doesn't just belong to him. It belongs to his wife as well. So don't deprive each other, except by mutual consent, and for a time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. And then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I'm saying this, Paul says, I'm saying this as a concession. I'm not saying this as a command. I'm not saying to every single one of you that all of you should go get married. In fact, Paul says my preference would be that people be single like me. But I recognize that each of us has his own gift from God. God 
calls some people to be single and gives them that gift, and God calls some people to be married, and he gives them that gift. You should be living according to the way of life that you are in. Married folk ought to be living like they're married. Single folk ought to be living like they're not married. Now, the first thing I need to point out, and again, you know, in, in our day and age, this, this seems utterly unremarkable, but, but we, ha- we can't miss the radical egalitarianism of what Paul is saying here. For, for a, a first century reader to hear that a, a wife's body is not hers alone, but that her husband has control over it, authority over it, would have been completely unremarkable. Well, of course, of course that's the case. But, Paul says, the same goes the other way. The husband's body is not his alone. His wife has authority over it. In all of these statements, Paul has them perfectly balanced. He says each man should have and should be intimate with his own wife. Each woman with her own husband. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. Likewise, the wife her husband. In Ephesians chapter 5, this is a passage that is often gets people all worked up because of what Paul says starting in verse 22 when he says, wives submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he's the Savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. But, but what he says right before this is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. What he calls couples to is mutual submission. And he goes on to give a charge to husbands that frankly is, is far more challenging than that he gives to wives. So wives, he says, defer to your husbands. To husbands, he says, be willing to die for your wife. But the point is that Folks are called to submit to one another. Men and women equally are called to submit to one another in marriage. So we can't miss this radical egalitarianism. We also can't miss this radical call to selflessness. And and I use that word advisedly, selflessness. Go back to Genesis chapter 2. You recall, God places the man in the garden. Everything in chapter 1, Paul says, is, or God says is good or very good. Uh, what's very good is humanity, but then he says it's not good that the man should be alone. So I will make him a suitable partner, a suitable counterpart. And after God brings this woman to the man... The man says, oh, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. To translate that, whoa, this is awesome. For this reason, the man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. He will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, as the old King James has it, and they will become one flesh. Jesus takes this up a notch in chapter 10 of Mark's gospel. Right, The Pharisees are disputing with him about divorce. And he says, you know, at the beginning of creation, 
God made them male and female. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When I conduct weddings, I will usually say that what is going on in that service is something that is invisible and is mysterious and is also absolutely true. That the people getting married have come into the church as two or come into the vineyard or into the hotel ballroom or the rooftop of the hotel or the country western bar where they met, wherever I'm doing the wedding, that they've come in as two people and that they're going to leave as one and that they'll spend the rest of their lives figuring out how to make that work, Lord willing. But there's a very real sense in which there is ontological change. That is to say, something is fundamentally different in the very nature of these people. When they have come to be married, they are two people, and when they leave, they are one. They look like two people. They may well feel just the same way they did when they came in. But they are now one. Their identity is has in a fundamental sense been changed from that of being an individual person to that of being part of a married couple. I would say there is after that marriage no Kevin apart from Pam and Kevin. There's no Pam apart from Kevin and Pam. And to the degree that Pam's trying to be Pam apart from Kevin and Pam, She's not living into the reality of that marriage relationship, that union that God has created, to the degree that Kevin is trying to self-actualize apart from the union that has been created in his relationship with his wife. Then he is being selfish rather than selfless. The commitment needs to be to the marriage, to the union, rather than to the self. As a practical matter, what this looks like is it looks like, first of all, putting the other person first, putting your spouse first. Paul, in chapter 2 of Philippians, talks about this broadly speaking for, for Christians. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from His love, any fellowship with the Spirit, if you have any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. In fact, Paul says your attitude should be the very same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be exploited, but in fact he made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a human being. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even to death on a cross. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is our example in laying ourselves out for one another. And if this is true in terms of our relationships with other believers, it is especially true in our relationships with our spouses. Sheldon Van Auken, who is a friend of C.S. Lewis's, wrote his memoir of marriage, A Severe Mercy, in which he talked about the commitment that he and his wife made to one another. It was the cup of water promise. The promise was that if at any point any of them asked something of the other that was not impossible or unreasonable, the other would grant the request immediately and cheerfully. So if at three in the morning he woke up and said, will you get me a cup of water? His wife would get up and get him a cup of water. She might be a little bleary-eyed, but she wouldn't grumble. She would just go get it. And knowing that she would, he would, of course, show courtesy and grace and kindness to her when deciding what he would or would not ask for. He would not ask lightly for these things because he knew that she would give them to him and vice versa. And this is certainly the case with regard to our sexuality. That for us to live out in marriage this relationship in which we are serving one another, our focus has to be not upon ourselves and our own desires and our own needs, but upon those of the person that we are married to. Now I have to say, as a first important caveat of two, that I will be giving today. First, of course, this is not absolute. There are times when one partner is simply not able to be available sexually to the other one. We didn't talk a whole lot about this in the series on human sexuality, but there are, in fact, some Christians who believe that the prohibition on sex during menstruation in Torah is one that has not been in any way developed further in the New Testament. It ought to be followed. Certainly, women who have just given birth to children are not in a position to be able to help their husband to gratify their sexual desires. There are times when people are simply sick or, in an extreme and obvious case, are just not there. They're just absent. There are times when people are dealing with difficult situations at work they're distracted. People can go through difficult times of emotional, mental illness, emotional problems, where they're simply not able to be available to one another. A, a patient and loving and sensitive spouse will, will recognize that and will not try to make claims upon the other. But for the most part, under normal circumstances, what Paul is saying is 
don't deprive each other except by mutual consent and that only for a time. The rabbis in talking about this phenomenon argued about how long that time could be. This was not a brand new idea that Paul had. He, the rabbis were familiar with the idea that couples might choose to abstain for a period of time. Usually the argument among the rabbis was whether that time ought to be a maximum of one week or two weeks. The fact is, as we talked about a lot in our series on human sexuality, it is possible to sin by having sex. It's easy. It's very common. But it's also possible to sin by not having sex. Marital fidelity is not merely the absence of infidelity. All of us, all of us, every last one of us, has desires that are perverted from true north. All of us are bent. All of us are broken. All of us want things that are not God's best for us. That's true in every area of our lives. That's true in how we deal with money, and that's true in how we deal with with our, our, our work. That's true in how we deal with our interactions with the creation around us. That's true in how we deal with our own bodies. That's true in how we deal with everything. That's certainly true in regard to our sexuality. For some people, the temptation is to sin sexually by doing things that we ought not to do. And for others, the temptation is to sin sexually by not doing things that we ought to do. And the result of this sin, Paul says, and we'll work back, is is nothing to sneeze at. Paul says, come together again after this time of mutual consent, mutually consenting chastity so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And there I think he's not saying that what you need to do then is work really hard to develop more self-control. No, his point is you're not somebody who is able to control yourself, therefore you need to be in a marriage relationship so that these sexual desires can be gratified. And Satan's going to tempt you if that is not going on in your life. Paul says that if a couple is not being intimate with each other, then by definition the one is depriving the other. He says in verse 4, that the wife's body doesn't belong to her alone, but also to her husband, and vice versa. So for a husband to fail to make himself available to his wife is to arrogate to himself authority that is not properly his. It is to make a claim of autonomy. It is to reject the dependence, the relatedness he has, the union that he has with his wife. And it is fundamentally, in verse 3, Paul says, a failure to fulfill a marital duty. Literally in the Greek, Paul says that the husband should put out for his wife. The Greek word apodidome literally means put out. 
right? So you know, it may sound naughty now, but this actually is biblical. Because I'm sure everybody who says it says, oh yeah, well that's apodidomy, of course, from the Greek. <laughs> no, the, the language he's using is, is, is strong and it's legal language. He said, you're, de- you're defrauding your spouse if you are not making yourself available to her. If you're not making yourself available to him. Now, this goes not just for sex and marriage, right? This has to do with you making yourself available for each other in every other way, too. But sex is one of those. Now, I need to give this other important caveat, which is that just because somebody has sinned sexually, just because somebody falls into temptation, that does not mean that her spouse is responsible. It doesn't mean that all sexual immorality can be attributed to a failure on the part of a spouse to be present sexually. The fact is, I'm well familiar with plenty of situations where people have fallen into affairs or other types of sexual immorality when their spouse was quite present and available to them. But what it does say, and I'm glad that the edge kids are here in the service today to hear this, is that when when you get married, you make a commitment basically to no longer be just yourself. You make a commitment to enter into a state of life that is inextricably bound with another person. That's what you're stepping up to. That's what you're committing to. Which is one of the reasons that it should not be entered into unadvisedly or lightly. It's one of the reasons that you should be very, very wise as you think about whom you marry. And it's also... I think, a reason to recognize the unique context in which this sexual activity takes place, one of total commitment, one of mutual self-sacrificing, self-giving love, one in which two people have bound themselves together with each other, have committed to enter into a way of life where they're not simply living for themselves, but they're living for this new thing that God has created. It's in that kind of setting, I think, that, and only in that kind of setting, that the extreme vulnerability that's involved in sex makes sense. Apart from that, We let ourselves be too exposed. We let ourselves be too at risk. We let ourselves spill out of the good boundaries that God has set. What God has said is that sex is good. It should happen. If you're married, you should be living like you're married. If you're not married, 
You should not be living like you're married. And all this is for our good. And all this is to God's glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would be a church where our marriage vows are honored, where your people are faithful to their spouses, not only by not being unfaithful, but by deliberately and intentionally and meaningfully and wholeheartedly and self-sacrificially and lovingly being faithful to one another. I pray for our children that they would choose wisely when they think of whom they're going to marry. That they would not take lightly what it means to be entirely vulnerable, entirely intimate with another human being. That they would see the goodness of your creation, your design for us to know that in the context of a committed marriage relationship. I pray above all, Father, that we would live our lives in a way that honors you, that we would honor you with the bodies that you've given us, knowing that they are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Give us the grace, Lord, to grow into what you call us to. In Christ's name, amen.